Welcome to the Working Together Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. In this episode of the Working Together podcast, I have a conversation with Kevin Kelly, the founding editor of Wired Magazine and the author of many fascinating books on technology, including his newest one, The Inevitable. In our conversation, I barely scratched the surface of Kevin's thinking on the past, present, and future of technology, culture, and society. And yet, our conversation still manages to cover a lot of ground. Everything from Kevin's travels throughout Asia in the 1970s, and how it impacted how he sees the world and sees technology, to how the internet is the world's biggest city. Uh, to what collaboration between two billion people might look like, um, to the importance of slacking off. There's a lot going on in this conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. And most importantly, I really hope that it helps you be inspired by all of the possibilities that seem to lie before us. I hope you enjoy it. So first of all, thank you very much for for taking the time out of your, I'm sure, very busy schedule uh, to have a conversation with me for the Working Together podcast. I really appreciate that. And uh, how I I usually start out a lot of my conversations with folks is to get into their story and to try and understand how they've kind of come to where they are today. And I know you have a very interesting and and fascinating story to tell um, in terms of how you've arrived at today. And I'd really like to hear in your own words, um, you know, how you began and, and how you've uh, moved through all of the experiences in your life to where you are today and what you're doing today. Um. Yeah, so, boy, where to start? Um, um, I was a science nerd in high school. I um, tried college, dropped out because it was more classroom work and I wanted to experience the world. I went to Asia uh, in early 70s and... Um, got a really bad dose of optimism as I saw um, millions of people bootstrap themselves out of poverty. Mm-hmm. I came I came back to the U.S. Um, after spending almost eight years in Asia and um, decided to start writing about travel, which is the only thing I knew very much about. And I got a computer to help me um, typeset my a little business and selling travel books. And um, when I plugged the computer into the phone jack, I had a ha-ha mm-hmm. epiphany. 
And that was when I began to see a different face of technology was the online world. And I became really interested in these networks of uh, this new continent of, uh, of the online world and began writing about that and mm-hmm. um, eventually got involved in starting some of the technological things around the online world uh, because of that. And that led eventually to um, being one of the co-founders of Wired. Mm-hmm. And you talk about that in your book uh, quite a bit, this this moment where you first in, were introduced to computers for a little while there with your father, right? Um, but you didn't really see the, you know, the value, I guess, in... in um, in what they could offer until you had that moment where you're connecting to the web and you could at that point really see, Oh my God, you know, this is a, this is quite the thing, right? Yeah, there was, I mean, I was kind of an old hippie or I was a hippie with an allergy to, um, what I thought was technology. Um, I owned very little and I was keeping, all this tech stuff at arm's distance, but mm-hmm. in the on, in the online world, I, I, I saw a different, more organic, uh, human scale face of technology, and um, it seemed the online world felt more like a Amish barn raising to me than it did uh, a factory, and so. Um, I became interested in what was going on in the biological aspects, the, the sort of organic aspects mm-hmm. of this new technology. Yeah. And just, I mean, how these different nodes are coming together and connecting in a almost bumblebee hive-like kind of way, right? Uh, I, I like that, that barn, I think you mentioned the barn raising um, uh, metaphor in, in, in one of your earlier books, if I recall. Is that right? This kind of idea of the talc. Well, I had a whole, I had a whole chapter. I had a whole chapter about the Amish mm-hmm. in my book with Technology One. I, yeah. I spent a lot of time talking about how the Amish decide what technology to use and why that might be helpful for us in terms of how we discern what we're introducing into our lives. Yeah. The, Generally, we aren't, so the, the Amish, unlike the rest of us, make their decisions about what technology to use collectively. So they actually have to have a, a, a discussion, a consensus. They actually have to articulate a little bit what their criteria are. Mm-hmm. And um, because, so they, so they do have a criteria, and most of us haven't really thought about what our, criteria it are for deciding mm-hmm. whether we use the technology or not. And that's, I mean, that's really, I think what a lot of, um, a lot of folks try to haphazardly put together, right. Is, you know, they might hopefully reach some sort of breaking point in the use of too much technology. Um, and then have kind of a moment of realization where, uh, they lift their head up, so to speak, out of the out of the mire of it all, and say, I have to, <laughs> I have to figure out some way to, you know, limit how this is impacting my life, right? 
Um, but yeah, the Amish are, they've always, they've always had that history, right. Of kind of carefully introducing technology and being very mindful of how technology gets introduced into their, into their society and their culture. So one, one thing that you mentioned here, um, that I wanted to, uh, kind of drill in a little bit was, uh, was, I guess, your your travels in in Asia and you mentioned there that you know you kind of got this this dose of optimism from seeing people kind of bootstrap themselves out of poverty can you talk a little bit more about what that experience was for you well at the time i was traveling in asia it was a very special moment where it was acting as a time machine because someone like me who had very little money um, mm-hmm. could travel to uh, places that were still living many centuries earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, previous to that time, you needed a lot of money to set up an expedition and um, uh, you needed permission and you needed all kinds of things to mm-hmm. kind of um, venture into these uh, lost worlds. But... Uh, Right at the moment I came along was um, there was people still living very much in ancient ways that you could kind of take a a jeep or a bus for very little money and arrive mm-hmm. there and mingle among them uh, in places that didn't have electricity and didn't have very much metal and and none of the um, infrastructure that we that they have now or that, that we associate with modernity. And so I got to spend a lot of time in not just villages, but towns and even cities Mm -hmm. that were essentially living unchanged for many centuries. Mm -hmm. And, um, like I was in Kathmandu, which I don't remember the population, but I'm going to guess it was, you know, Half a, half a million people um, that had no cars, basically. And mm-hmm. it was an entire pedestrian city, not a little village, not a mm-hmm. not a street. It was an entire city that was pedestrian. And um, uh, I was in northern Afghanistan in towns that had, no, again, not villages, but towns without electricity. And um, all the other medieval culture that would be that would be based on that and um uh so when other parts of asia were arising they were they were starting from this very ancient point and mm-hmm. they were building in my eyewitness they were building the most modern cities of the world um, right before my eyes from this, you know, ancient place. And you could see the entire, uh, passive progress hmm. played out. And, um, that was within the span of know, just a few it, years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I, there would be rice paddies and I'd come back a year later and there would be factories and then, uh, there'd be, then there'd be skyscrapers. And so, mm-hmm. 
that's uh, I'm still I'm still processing the, mm. the 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 import and consequences of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's such a special kind of time. And you said that was in the seventies that you were there. Yeah, that was the early seventies, and right. of course now anybody can can visit these places, but they they they're not as you know they're, they're not as medieval. They're not medieval anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was, there was, there was that, that brief moment when you had both the, the convenience of modern transportation and the, um, the wonder of these, uh, medieval places. Um, and that, that lasted for a decade or so. Mm-hmm. And then, um, kind of like a seriation almost. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but like, uh, a bit of an overlap almost of one culture and mode of technology and another kind of existing together for some time. And then eventually right. just the other, right? Do you feel like your experience in Asia helped you see um, that kind of the world was transforming so rapidly and, and almost, um, and almost reaching the same pace together? No, I, I think it's been a bit of a journey. I mean, uh, it, it, even now, the the pace of change in Asia is mm-hmm. generally uneven. Right? I mean, it's um, the eastern seaboard of China, you know, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Guangzhou. Uh, you know, they, they, they have surpassed us because they're entirely brand new cities, bigger than New York City, mm-hmm. all built in the last 20 years from scratch. And yet, in the far west of some of the provinces like Yunnan or Sichuan, uh, in, in the mountains there, there are some of the most isolated places on the planet, still very, very primitive and, you know, uh, owner built homes and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, uh, animal husbandry and, you know, and, and, and a subsistence economy. And so um, that's all within one country. And uh, that was true before. So that, so, so I, I, but, but I think the, the story that I have recently been kind of pondering is this, um, I just came back from Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, is, uh, this kind of global convergence uh, uh, in culture, and it's not like a homogenization. It's even mm-hmm. weirder than that. It's it's mm-hmm. this um, it's this way, particularly among the young people, where they have um, they're almost indistinguishable um, in their aims, ambitions, maybe lifestyles, mm. and. Um, uh, as, as if there's sort of some platonic uh, <laughs> yeah. lifestyle, yeah. interesting that that people are moving to, yeah. and um, uh, and so I don't know. Anyways, so 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 I'm still I'm still learning from from what's happening mm-hmm. in um, in places like China, um, they're, they're definitely not homogenous, but there is 
something happening and it you know has been happening for a long time mm-hmm. so uh that the 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 development the optimism is a known story by now it continues but the convergence of culture hasn't really been explored completely i mean i'm there's you know McDonaldization there's McDonald's in every city but that's not the full explanation. I think it's much more complicated. Yeah, and I almost feel like that that earlier um, explanation, kind of like the early two thousands, you know, globalization narrative. It it, it was it was uh, it could barely see what was coming down the pike, you know, because it's so that I guess I guess that model is almost like a push model. It's like globalization as a push, where you're pushing out McDonald's and Starbucks and whatever and homogenization in that kind of you know vein whereas almost what you're seeing now is an interesting pull model where you have these these regions who are um, kind of pulling in what what the internet and when, what digitization and all of this has to offer and then remixing it like to take a theme from your from your book in their own way so it's it's like they're they're the same because they're doing the same activity but because of the remixing it's totally different. You know what I mean? And so like, one yeah, of the, yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I, I might be crazy. <laughs> you know, I'm certainly not, uh, I'm certainly not as, as, um, you know, thoughtful about these things as you are, but for, for the work that, uh, that I do with working together, one of the things that I'm always, um, curious about is how trends over time, um, how how we can almost kind of design new social innovations around them that that uh, that deal with some of the unintended consequences that come from it. And one of those, I think, right now, one of those major unintended consequences that that's happening because of this this digitization wave that's going across the world is um, is a total transformation in what what kind of skills and tools and techniques and things like this that young folks and people in general have to use. Yeah, I, I, I think that's part of the, of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I, um, again, am pondering without a whole lot of street-level evidence is the fact that um, we have... Um, increasing powerful tools that allow us to collaborate uh, us as human beings, allow us to collaborate at a vast planetary scale. And um, if you consider the 2 billion people with Facebook, Mm -hmm. they are collaborating at a very minimal, trivial layer of sharing gossip and, and cat videos. But there certainly is a is a potential to to do something like Wikipedia, which is you know being done at the scale of millions. Mm-hmm. But imagine imagine if two billion people decided to do something together to collaborate, actually collaborate on something uh, that would be mind boggling, powerful, and um, you know, in terms of working together, I think. Uh, the prospect of having having a million people work on something all at once is uh, 
is is really something we have very little experience with on this planet and will become more and more common um, as the tools make it more and more possible and as, you know, the global problems make it more and more necessary. So uh, I'm kind of excited by the idea of uh, these planetary collaborations. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I said there's, there's not a lot of evidence of, of it having been done yet, but there's every kind of evidence that it will be. Um, how it, you know, how it actually breaks out or first happens or whatever is I think when it does, people will be kind of shocked and you know, imagine that it just happened all of a sudden, but in fact, I think it will be, I think there'll be a lot of precedents and prior art be, before it happens. And um, so would you say so like something no like, idea. like GitHub and that is a, is a current, um, template? for this type of collaboration that you're thinking yeah, of? Or yeah, it, you think it, of? It, 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 yeah, no, it is, though I don't think the, the scale of GitHub is in the billions. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in, but yeah, GitHub is, is an example of that, although I don't actually, I would like to see some numbers, but I don't know what the, um, the largest uh, scale is. I, when I was doing the book, I looked at, I was looking at open source projects just to get a sense of what was the, largest scale well uh in terms of numbers of people involved in it the, the actually one of the largest um ones they found was recently from the reddit the reddit um april fools for this year called the place mm-hmm. where they had a million pixels and people were controlling the pixels and they actually had a million and a million people take part in that seven two hour um hmm. uh experiment and it was an amazing, amazing uh, performance or collaboration because it was kind of a co-op or whatever they call it, co-opetition. There was mm-hmm. collaboration as well as people um, fighting in a kind of a game, game, gaming way, mm-hmm. adversaries and competition. Um, but there was a there was a huge amount of collaboration and. That to me is um, a, a kind of a little bit of a peak, a little bit of a um, uh, a preview of again what could be done. That was to set up as a April Fool's prank game, um, but you know you could do. Uh, amazing things if you had a million people working on something together at the same time and, and, you know, in a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it is, um, it is a funny kind of collaboration, right? Because it's, it's almost, um, it's almost like machine readable, right? Like the, the level of detail involved in that group activity is, is fairly small and, and manageable, um, as a result for such a large group of people. What do you think about some of these problems that are, you know, they're so, uh, they're so hairy and gnarly and local, right? That you can't really make it machine readable in a sense, right? You can't make it um, something that a million people could easily collaborate on. What about that? Well, 
those kind of problems people have been thinking about for a long time, and I don't think I have anything new to add to that. Mm. Um, you know, it's like education. Like, you know, people have been talking about the education reform for as long as I've been alive, and, uh, you know, it's a gnarly problem, and I don't have any, um, I don't have any insight of how to move it along. And you yourself... There are people smarter much smarter than me who have been doing that for for a long time. But I, I'm I'm right now much more interested in the um the new possibilities, the new opportunities that the technology gives us um for collaboration, for working together at this new scale. Mm-hmm. And um and, and and it has something to do with globalization in the sense that um, the people participating are likely as likely to live in Uzbekistan, Ukraine, or uh, Jakarta as they are in Toronto. And so, um, uh, you know, there's all kinds of consequences from that. I mean, my whole thousand true fan theory is somewhat based on the fact that you know when you have a, a several billion people connected mm-hmm. together um, that gives the, the possibility of, you know, of any one in a million interests. So like an interest that would only appeal to a one in a million people still has enough. So you still have 10,000, you still have a thousand fans. You still have a thousand people interested, which is enough to support mm-hmm. somebody in, in that the most esoteric uh, niche interest will still have enough people to support it. And and that's sort of like, that's like the first time that's true. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I have to say I've read that piece by yours many times. Um, and also the Tim Ferriss revisited version too. Um, and maybe, maybe this is, this is a good point to kind of shift gears a little bit too, to this other element to the story. That, that you know that that forms that working together and that collaboration and that almost uh, renewed optimism and joy, I guess, about the present moment. And uh, I really like this line. I think it's in one of your first chapters of the new book where you talk about now being the best time to start. Like, kind of looking back from 2050, and if you're looking at today the people in 2050 would be thinking, man, what would it, what would it have been like, (laughs) you know, to be some, you know, some new entrepreneur with an Arduino in their garden, trying to figure out how to like use the sensors to design some, you know, like that, I think, um, is very, uh, it's very positive for us right now. And, and the, you know, the thousand true fans theory and the whole long tail business, all of that, it it kind of points to this amazing opportunity that's right before us today to begin kind of contributing to the world in some way, whether or not we're going to be doing anything that's like as collaborative um, as that kind of pixel example that you gave where there's millions of people all working on the same thing. We're all kind of work. We're all pointing in the same direction. We're not working on the same thing, but we're pointing in the same direction right now. And there's, there's this possibility that we can, um, we can really generate some interesting economic development and momentum, I think. 
but a lot of people don't really recognize that. So what do you say to people who, you know, still feel like the only answer is to just go get a job? Well, um, I'm a big believer in slack and wasting time. I think that's one of the advantages of youth is that youth can spend 50 hours on a game or they can spend a lot of time doing things without necessarily any productive goal in mind. And Mm -hmm. out of that slack comes, um, an insight, uh, appreciation and awareness a mastery and so um that's one thing that i think um we do get from progress is you know we 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 do have we we do have a possibility of leisure to, to to waste time that way um i i also think that um uh in general, uh, kids, I think, are um, and they're, they're not wasting enough time. I think sometimes hmm. uh, they're overscheduled, and uh, um, and in this country, there's such a, a pressure to and housing so expensive, such a pressure to. Uh, it's really hard to kind of like. Um, What's the word you want? Uh, you know, couch surf or mm-hmm. sponge off of off of uh, cheap rents, and so um, people are often forced to. And that in developing countries, they have cheap rents, but they're often don't have any resources, and they have to go to work right away. So I, I'm hoping that part of what um, the robotics and AI will bring is is again um, that that promised leisure of, of, uh, that allows us to, to waste time and be inefficient, which is, I think the prime mm-hmm. or prime, uh, ability, um, and as robots do more of the work, what we're going to be better at is wasting time. Yeah. It's, it's so true because, you know, when you're, when you have slack is when you start to tinker. Um, yeah, I mean, unless you're totally enveloped in the screen and you haven't created that criteria for yourself to limit, you know, how, how much of that you get, that's the time when you start to tinker and go, oh, you know, maybe I'll try this out. Maybe, maybe I will start a blog or maybe I will try my hand at podcasting. And that's, yeah, I agree. It's so important. And I think, you know, there's another, there, like I, I almost want to call it, I don't want to call it the dark side, but <laughs> sometimes I feel like that's what it is. But it's this, um, it's this call to hustle, you know, that you gotta just, and it's it's in folks like Gary Vaynerchuk and all those kind of folks, right, who just say, get out the door, have a sixteen-hour day where you're just doing nothing but hustle. And I think that for a lot of people is resonating because of, uh, you know, this situation where you see high rents and you see these, these barriers, I guess. Right. I think there are phases. I, I you know, I, I think, um, I, I think there are phases and there should be phases. And I think there are probably moments when you want to do 16 hours a day hustling mm-hmm. and you're not, you're, 
you're not eating you're just you're just completely consumed by uh you know doing this thing and i think it's appropriate and then i think you know after you do that for eight months or nine months or whatever it is and you, you take a you take a break and you do absolutely nothing and you you know you doodle in your studio um or you master call of duty three whatever it is and i i I think that to me is um seems to me to be the uh the highly evolved lifestyle where you are are in phases um I think if you are assisting out or hustling for ten years or more that you know that's just a, that's just a recipe for disaster and I think if you're just playing call of duty for ten years or more that's also so oh yeah, yeah. um I, I think I think I think this idea of uh, of phases or seasons uh, makes more sense where you kind of go deep in these modes, and um, at least that fits my personality a lot better. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of like a more more bumpy and kind of you know. Uh, it's a bumpy geography of life rather than just this consistent, smooth, you know, nine to five, or if you're hustling like crazy, nine to nine to 10 or whatever it might be, you know, it's, it's a you, little, you mentioned this, uh, sorry. I think the metaphor, I would say not so much bumpy is more like a landscape where mm. you are ascending a mountain and then you kind of you come to the descent where you kind of open up into a big valley and so uh, then you may go into kind of you know, the woods or then you kind of you're floating down the river. So it's sort of like a landscape view where you then you cross the valley and you have to ascend the mountains again. Hmm. And um, uh, so, so for a period of time, you're just climbing. And then there's a period of time where you're kind of meandering. And there's a period of time when you are, you know, exploring and a period of time when you are... Uh, you know, thrashing through the mud. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like a landscape view of uh, of life. And you know, it, it, the funny thing about how you how you describe that it's that's a parallel with your story, I think, right? And the journeys that you've had through these different landscapes um, that made such yeah, an impact. And, and it's you. also right. There's also kind of a what I call kind of a project uh framework for i think in terms of projects each project may have its own rhythm and quality so rather than a career is kind of you know the career entailed you kind of show up and do the same thing for 35 years and then you're you're dismissed um the project oriented is more like you know you have these seasons or these patches or these terrains that you hmm. are in for a while and then you are and then you shift you you break through or you arrive at a different terrain different project and you spend some time and there may be shifting there may be in, in intermediate periods where you aren't doing much or you're you're resting or whatever um i think that's uh another framework for kind of understanding a life where you, um, you know, again, it's like phases or periods or projects. 
of a, my friend Stuart Brand, he's he has divided his life into projects, and he says any project that's he sort of is, is worth doing is usually about a five year duration from the moment he thinks of it to the moment he lets it go, hmm. and um, roughly, and that that you know, and that um, so he was kind of pacing himself, like how many five year projects do I have left? In my mm. life, and um, choosing just the um, right ones. Yeah, right. You have to you have to really select and mm-hmm. be careful about those because you have a limited number of of projects that you get to throw your life into. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, thinking in those those kind of terms, you know, it's like you'll be at this thing for maybe five, you know, approximately five years, and so you want it to be a great great run. Um, and it might have its own rhythm that, that, that a particular project will have its own rhythm. And, um, then, you know, there'll be a, you'll have a break and hopefully you'll have a shift time in between a gap mm-hmm. before you start the next one. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, you know, just to, just to see the other side of it, right. Like there, I feel like that lifestyle is possible now more than it, more than it ever has been. Right. We, we are not salaried masses or any of that kind of early 20th century type stuff. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. but what do you say to those people who are kind of still stuck in that mode, uh, who still, you know, find themselves, um, you know, with this eye towards retirement and their organization that they're in and they've, they've got, instead of a five year project ahead of them, it's more like a 35 year thing. Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's tough to place myself in other people's because I've had a very privileged, uh, you know, I was born white, male, American in the 50s. It's like, uh, you know, hard to hard to completely put myself in someone else's shoes but 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 I do think that if you have any if, if you have two of those four things I just mentioned then you probably have more choices than you think you do mm-hmm. um and I uh I think generally people have a lot more options than, than they're even aware of I, I did this book called Cool Tools which was this what I call a catalog of possibilities it was um, you know, this huge oversized book, which reviewed tools in the broadest sense. And the idea was called a subtitle, a catalog of possibilities, because each of these tools was, uh, a handle to possibilities to, of doing things yourself or a small group. Mm-hmm. And we, 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 there are just so many more possibilities that we have, um, available to us. Uh, the, 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 then, then we know, and um, people often, I think, get stuck on like you know, should I do A or B? When the reality is, is there's you know, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, K, other possibilities that they're either unaware of or ignoring, and um, uh, that, that that's. I think that's true no matter really what your um, constraints are, mm-hmm. what your situation is, is you 
probably have more choices than you think you do. And, and I think I, part of what educa- education is about, part of what um, being connected in reading and and learning is about is 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 uh, about becoming aware of at least mm-hmm. how to find those other choices or how to see them. Mm-hmm. And um, the more you're aware of them, I think the more successful you'll be because um, in, those increased options can also be a way around what seems to be a stumbling block. Yeah, I mean, you, you uh, I think you're hitting the nail on the head there and, and to tie it back to something you said earlier about the... Um, the thousand true fans notion, right? That, that we actually are in the long tail right now. Um, it's a very unique place to be because the long tail is super fat. <laughs> you know, what the internet has done is it made, it's made that, that tail super fat. So instead of, you know, being limited by the, uh, the number of people in your town who might be into the very particular thing that you're into, Mm-hmm. You now have mm-hmm. the internet of the city or the, the city internet, right? Like the internet, I, I like yeah. to tell my friends this, that, you know, part of the whole reason why I started podcasting and started working together and blogging and all of this just a couple of years ago is because I had a bit of an, an eye-opening experience where I realized the internet is the world's biggest city right now. And you can kind of set up shop wherever you want. Um, and you will find like people will begin kind of frequenting your shop or your 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 blog or whatever it is that you want to have there because it, you know it's a bajillion times bigger than New York ever was right and in the past it would have been you know somebody really wanting to follow their passion would have had to quit their job and then kind of take a big risk moving to the big smoke right so that they could set up their little hobby shop that was about one particular thing that they were passionate about. Right. And then they would take the risk and plunge into New York city and have their, their little storefront and be successful because there was at least a thousand people in that community who would support it. And now that it, you can do that from your basement, you know? Um, so the, the level yep. of risk is so much lower, but I think a lot of people don't, don't see that yet. And I, and that's kind of the next yeah, shift. And, that and, I, and, and, Right, and you know, to to, to be perfectly honest, there's um, a lot of work involved in finding, connecting with a thousand people. They're mm-hmm. not going to just show up. Yes, exactly. At your door. So, so um, the the risk is that um, this is not an automatic thing. It takes some time. You may not succeed. Um, and for uh, many people who feel stuck, that they feel like an indulgence being able to do that, but. Um, uh, the more people that do succeed, I think that gives inspiration and confidence to others to to try. And also, we also need more and better tools to, you know, identify and connect with those thousand true fans. That we're not done yet. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot of work still. Yeah. I... Um, so, Stephen, I have I have I have uh, time for about one more question. Sure. Um, I think that. Uh... You know, I think one question that I'd like to ask you to close out on is um, is kind of one around your mentors. You know, you talked a lot about your experiences traveling and how that impacted your life. Uh, 
Um, but I'm, I'm curious about who you kind of consider to be a mentor and, and how this person or, or group of people impacted you and, and what valuable learning you got from them. Yeah. So for me, it's actually very easy. It's a, it's a person, uh, Stuart Brand, who, uh, founded and ran the whole earth catalogs starting in 1968. And I was in high school and I went to Woodstock, uh, New York, and I saw a copy of it there. And it was instant grok at first sight. I thought, oh my gosh, this, <laughs> this, this was made for me. This is, you know, he made this for me. And I, you know, subscribed. And each one that came, I read cover to cover. I was just so, it was my education. And I absorbed a lot of, um, you know uh, what Stuart was doing, and, and bless his heart, he had this stuff in the back where he was completely transparent about the business and what it was doing, and how he was doing, it and how much he was making. And so there was this this lesson where 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 he was, you know, being my mentor even at that time, even though we had never met. Hmm. And um, it was the only place I wanted to work, but I, I you know, I knew I had no qualifications or I mean I knew nothing I was just mm-hmm. a kid high school but um, through very complicated situations I finally did wind up basically my first job when I was almost 30 um, or more than 30 uh, I wound up working there with and then got to work with Stuart and uh, my appreciation and my regard and and has only increased uh, and i i've learned everything from him hmm. um just just by working with him um and he also you know has indulged me and took a liking to me so he's been um we've done many things together um he Taught me to be transparent. Taught me the, the the benefits of being transparent, of uh, always making allies rather than hmm. adversaries, mm-hmm. um, of um, being uh, of thinking laterally, of um, um, it's interesting. I've never done this. Uh, cataloging of um what else he's um taught me again indirectly uh, uh about um maybe how to think how to organize he also taught me the value of saying no hmm. how to say no about letting things go mm-hmm. um um I learned from him how to approach and request things from people. Hmm. Um, and I think, uh, what else? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I learned a lot about how to think from, from him, mm-hmm. was, you know, in, in the way that, you know, say, uh, Grizzly, the old professor might have taught you 
I just think I since I'm a college dropout, I mean, Stewart was my was my college. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great college to have, right? Yeah. And I, I think everything you described there, I mean, it just it I think it circles back really nicely to um uh kind of I think what your work offers the world as well, which is you know this this uh, this feeling of optimism and excitement about everything, and 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 an encouragement to think through it laterally, especially right. So thank you for for taking your time today to uh, to talk with me about these interesting themes that we've touched on today. Well, sure thing. Thanks for having me on. Um, I enjoyed your questions, and uh, I wish you the best in your endeavors. And uh, send me a link when it's posted. All right. Well, thanks, Kevin. Have a good one. Have a good night. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. And if you'd like to receive the weekly working together review, where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economics, strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com. Oh,